0: Welcome, everybody, to NIAC's panel today, Iran Deal or Deadlock? Why are the Iran nuclear talks stuck? My name is Jamal Abdi. I'm the president of the National Iranian-American Council. Uh, I'll be your moderator today. Um, It has been more than 16 months since Joe Biden took office with a stated commitment to restore U.S. compliance with the Iran nuclear deal, Uh, and in spite numerous rounds of negotiations Uh, and what is for all intents and purposes a agreement uh, in hand uh, short a few remaining issues uh, the jcpoa remains in limbo the final hurdle apparently is the trump administration's designation of iran's islamic revolutionary guard corps as a foreign terrorist organization uh, which iran views as inconsistent with the agreement Uh, but which the Biden administration insists can only be removed in exchange for additional non-nuclear concessions from Iran. Uh, To unpack where things are and where things may be headed, I'm joined today by three distinguished guests. Uh, Kelsey Davenport uh, is the Director of Non-Proliferation Policy at the Arms Control Association. Ellie Guerinmaye is the Deputy Director uh, of Middle East and North Africa Program and Senior Policy Fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations, Uh, and Tyler Cullis is Counsel at Ferrari & Associates. Uh, With their help, we're going to talk through uh, the uh, remaining hurdles to the deal, uh, implications for U.S., regional, And and, uh, global policy, uh, as well as some of the non-proliferation benefits and issues that we may imminently face. Uh, So to start us off, I want to go to you, Ellie. Um, The EU coordinator Enrique Mora is in Tehran uh, right now uh, for what I think he has described as the last ditch effort to try to salvage the, the agreement. Uh, so I'm interested in your thoughts. What is Mora going to attempt to do uh, with Tehran? Are there creative solutions uh, available? Um, or is this simply setting the stage for the next phase uh, of this adventure, which is a blame game and, and potential deterioration?
1: Sure, Jamal, and thanks for inviting me today. So listen, the EU, in their very special position as the coordinator of the joint commission set up by this nuclear deal, really since uh, 2017, when President Trump came into office, have been trying to be the go-between uh, from Washington on one hand and Tehran on the other to try and find solutions that can keep this nuclear agreement, preserve it and salvage its uh, structure. So they weren't able to do that under the Trump administration in terms of the U.S. uh, preventing the U.S. from withdrawing, despite the fact that at very high levels they engage with President Trump on this at heads of state level. And really since then, and I think even today, what Enrique Mora is doing is trying to bring the U.S. and the Iranian position closer towards a middle ground compromise where the U.S. can rejoin the agreement uh, and the Iranians essentially roll back their nuclear activities. I think the EU has consistently shown that it is a good faith actor on this front in terms of trying to push and nudge everyone uh, to a diplomatic solution. Uh, The European countries that are parties to this deal, UK, France and Germany, have also uh, really all under the Trump administration and for the past year under the Biden administration have been trying to find ways to convince the United States to come back into the deal. They're still part of it. Um, They are, uh, you know, making their case as the U.S.'s close allies about why it's in their security and the U.S. security uh, for the United States to come back into the deal. Now, you um, you know, pointed out at the main thorn here, which is, will President Biden uh, take the very political, uh, potentially political costly decision of removing the so-called FTO designation from Iran's revolutionary guard corps? And this is an area where Unfortunately, the Europeans and the EU cannot do much. It's almost a bilateral U.S.-Iran part of the puzzle. They have, in Vienna, uh, done their bit as Europeans to get all the brackets removed from the nuclear elements of this deal and the sanctions-lifting elements of the deal, which is where they could make a uh, make a real, um, you know, substantive contribution. But it seems right now uh, the Europeans are very frustrated that, again, as this history of Iran-US has always been stuck in, it's a matter of politics, not policy. I think both the Iranians and the Americans know it's good policy for them to go back to their commitments under the JCPOA. It's a win-win situation, but it's really the politics at home on the domestic front that's blocking them. And what the Europeans are doing is trying to really come up with several different solutions. They've already floored several uh, to see if they can get a yes from both sides. Unfortunately, so far... Uh, the formula hasn't worked for both Tehran and Washington and they're kind of going back to the drawing table and interestingly it seems this time, this round, uh, the Qataris are also getting more publicly engaged in this shuttle diplomacy Uh, they're going to be visiting Iran at the highest level this week and they're making a trip to Europe uh, with ongoing consultations with the United States so it does seem that a new round of diplomacy has picked up on this front
0: And do you have a sense, I mean is, is there a creative solution here? Are the Qataris um, potentially uh, able to add new incentives? Uh, or or is Europe able to add new incentives for Iran to blink on this question of the FTO designation? Or how is Europe able to kind of sweeten the deal for, for both sides to be able to say yes?
1: I think that the last uh, um, number of weeks of uh, real impasse on this issue have really proved two points. One is that the Iranians are not going to blink and they're not going to just drop this demand for uh, at least a substantive part of the IRGC to be removed from this very unprecedented uh, measure that the United States took under the Trump administration, which was to essentially designate a foreign military under this FTO designation. They want that removed for a number of uh, practical and political reasons. And on the US side, it's become clear that they don't see this as part of the JCPOA package. Now, whether that's wrong or right is another point, but the, they've made it very clear now that they want something reciprocal from Iran as part of a quid pro quo. Now, there's been lots of different uh, face saving formulas that we've thought about you know people around this zoom call uh, others uh, you know everything ranging from well maybe we can keep parts of the IRGC as part of the designation that have been involved in the regional uh, activities of Iran but remove the whole organization or let's come up with some sort of a package that can be passed at the UN Security Council uh, so it's not a bilateral Iran US um, a measure, but a more uh, international measure that can give Iran some cover. Um, so I think there are creative ways beyond this also that are being thought about, and perhaps um, you know the Qataris can bring an interesting regional element to this because the regional part of the puzzle has been something that the U.S. has been concerned about, um, particularly Iran's activities in the region vis-a-vis U.S. interests and assets. So you know, perhaps there is a give and take that can still be had on this front. Uh, you know, I think for the Europeans, they would love it if the U.S. and Iran would just find a common solution to this themselves. But it seems that there needs to be help from outside actors to get get them through to the finishing line on this.
0: I, I I do want to go to Tyler to talk through this FTO issue, but first let's let's kind of. Um, <laughs> Let's remind ourselves of the stakes here. So, Kelsey, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what is the current status of Iran's nuclear program. Um, and if the talks do break down, what does what does escalation potentially look like in terms of their program?
2: Great. Thank you, Jamal, and thanks to NIAC for hosting this panel. It's great to be here with Tyler and Ellie and appreciate all of you tuning in to today to listen. Uh, So the current trajectory of Iran's nuclear program really underscores the urgent need to restore the JCPOA and its limits and intrusive monitoring. I mean, if we look at where Iran's nuclear program is now versus where it was, you know, three years ago when Iran began to violate the deal, or even you know back to 2013 when negotiations on the JCPOA really commenced, uh, the threat uh, is much more urgent, and Iran is much closer to a nuclear weapon from a capability perspective than it ever has been in the past. Uh, so just to give you an example, you know, when the nuclear deal was fully implemented and Iran was abiding by all of its commitments, uh, it would have taken Tehran about 12 months to produce enough fissile material for a bomb if the decision were made to do so. You know, Now, as a cumulative result of Iran's breaches, uh, that time frame is down to you know, about two weeks, and it will continue to, to decline even more. Uh, so we're very Very close to the point where Iran could make the decision to produce enough fissile material for a weapon. And international inspectors may not be able to detect that. Uh, They could try to dash to this point uh, between inspections. Now, if Iran gets to that point, you know, it would still take them another one to two years to to weaponize. Uh, But it's in producing the fissile material that you have a window to try to kind of detect and and, and disrupt the dash for a bomb, Uh, when you have a window to actually act diplomatically to try to, you know, roll Iran back. Uh, So my fear is that if we don't restore, or the JCPOA, and we fall into that undetectable breakout period, uh, the risk of, of the United States, uh, more of a risk of Israel you know, trying to take military action or engaging in acts of sabotage to roll back Iran's program and increase that time frame uh, begins to increase significantly. Uh, and in that scenario, I think there's a real risk of an escalatory spiral of actions leading to a broader conflict. So the risk really is quite imminent. Um, now if, if the decision were made to you know to, to halt talks or if talks run out of momentum. Uh, You you asked about escalation, and there again, the situation really is is quite precarious. Uh, Iran could undertake no new nuclear actions, and its program will still continue to pose more and more of a risk, Uh, because as Iran's program advances, it continues to stockpile more enriched uranium and uranium enriched to higher levels. Again, that would allow it to move to nuclear weapons more quickly. You know, Iran also is going to continue, you know, testing its advanced centrifuges, which are the machines used to enrich uranium. It's likely going to continue experiments with uranium metal, which can be used for nuclear fuel, you know, or for for nuclear weapons. All of these activities, if Iran even just continues them, will increase risk because, again, it reduces that breakout and it results in Iran gaining more knowledge about how these processes work. Um, And that's again, that's just if Iran does nothing and sort of stays on the current trajectory. But if Iran wanted to ratchet up tensions further, you know it has escalation dominance in the short term. There are an array of actions that Iran could take to sort of further its nuclear program, and that it could do quite quickly. I'm sure more quickly than the United States and its partners could try to, you know, reconstitute a diplomatic campaign to to pressure Iran back into talks, or you know, reconstitute international support for for new negotiations. I mean, there are a range of activities that you know could be Relevant to building a nuclear weapon that Iran could sort of begin some experimentation with uh, under the guise of civil nuclear activities. A lot of these activities are prohibited or strictly regulated by the JCPOA you know, they could further expand their uranium enrichment capacity, you know, they could reopen the plutonium pathway to nuclear weapons. So, again, this just underscores that there's a, a range of activities that Iran could undertake uh, to really ratchet up the, the, the pressure and to make the current crisis, you know, even worse. So, to me, you know, that, again, comes back to this critical point of the Biden administration needing to act, you know, with, with more urgency and with greater political courage uh, to restore the deal now, because this is the best opportunity we have to roll back Iran's nuclear program, uh, to reintroduce intrusive monitoring and verification, and to ensure that you know Iran's pathways to a nuclear weapon you know remain verifiably blocked.
0: <clears throat> Can you help help me understand? You know, you say uh, two week two week breakout, which is not necessarily that's not you know having the bomb, but having the fissile material to be able to uh, produce a weapon. How much shorter can that breakout window get? I mean, isn't that, aren't we in the danger zone now? Of uh, I guess we're not quite at undetectable breakout, but we're pretty close to it. So how how much further can it get? And I ask that because you hear a lot of um, you know the the folks in the, the in congress who oppose the negotiations who are calling for biden to abandon the negotiations and uh, ratchet up sanctions pressure or some other means uh, seemingly without kind of this understanding that you, you know there we're we're on a very uh, we have a very small window here and so if there's a breakdown of the talks iran could quickly accelerate into this undetectable breakout zone so what is that how how short does that potentially get where it is I guess, an even more serious problem.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I I think the real period of concern is if breakout starts to drop to below a week, because that's when I think you really do enter that period where there'd be a risk of of breakouts between inspections by the International Atomic Energy Agency, because those inspections have been, you know, severely curtailed uh, by Iran's breaches of, of the JCPOA in response to Trump's withdrawal. Inspectors used to have daily access to Iran's uranium enrichment facility. You know, now, now they don't. So uh, there's a lot less visibility right now, which I, I think, you know, which is, is unfortunate because, you know, with less visibility, I think comes, you know, less assurance that that breakout sort of would, would, would be detected. Uh, I think one of the, the main things to look for, though, is whether or not Iran takes any steps to prevent that breakout from falling further. Uh, and, and that's something, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of visibility on until later in this month when the International Atomic Energy Agency uh, releases its next report. Uh, because we, there are a lot of assumptions that go into to Breakout. I mean, I, I'm calculating the breakout looking at how quickly Iran has produced enriched uranium in the past, you know, how many centrifuges they have spinning, and then you know, extrapolating the time periods from there. Um, but if Iran wanted to, you know, they could take some, some very small steps uh, that would at least kind of preserve that, that breakout window. Uh, I'm not necessarily optimistic that Iran will do that uh iran does have some domestic legislation in place that requires it to meet certain thresholds for its nuclear program if the jcpoa isn't restored Uh, and all of those you know contribute to this this declining breakout um so not to be a downer here but but yes the situation you know can get worse and we're certainly headed you know in that direction and we're headed in that direction very soon i mean i think if we don't see you know, a clear pathway to restore the JCPOA, you know, within the, you know, by, you know, sort of mid-late June, uh, then, you know, we risk crossing that threshold at which, you know, the United States judges that the deal just just cannot be restored uh, and it needs to change course. So So time is very short.
0: Got it. I want to, I do want to follow up on this point of, you know, at what point the deal cannot be restored, but now that we we have a sense of the the the, the risk here, let's talk about the hurdle. Um, what is preventing the U.S. from getting this agreement? Where we are um, getting the eyes on the ground and the inspectors and and uh, increasing that breakout window? So this FTO issue. So Tyler, do you want to? Can you walk us through the FTO designation? What what is this designation? Why? Why is it significant and in practical terms, is it actually significant for Iran or the United states um, or is it purely symbolic as as um as some have contended
3: yeah, so uh, and again, and thanks Jamal and Nayak, and very glad to participate with Ellie and Kelsey on this panel um, the f t o designation is actually it's an authority it ad- administered by the Department of State um so it's actually outside of treasury and ofac um and It was put in place around the mid-90s, and it's codified in the Immigration and Nationality Act, um, which hints at the immigration aspect, which has been a concern for Iranian Americans. Um, Generally, there's three criteria that need to be met for an entity to be designated as an FTO. It needs to be a foreign organization that is engaged in terrorist activity or terrorism or has the capability and intent to engage in terrorism or terrorist activity, and such terrorism or terrorist activity threatens US national security. Um, if those criteria are met, then the Secretary of State has the authority to designate a foreign organization as a foreign terrorist organization. Um, the legal consequences of the de- designation are actually rather insignificant. And again, I brought up the time period of when the heft- when this authority was put in place, because it really predates a lot of the sanctions authorities we use. Today um, and it has much more limited um, effect than those authorities in place today. Um, and again, there's three main legal consequences from an FTO designation. One is there's a provision of federal criminal law um, which criminalizes and makes un- which makes unlawful and criminalizes the material support or res- the provision of material support or resources um, to a foreign terrorist organization. Um, There's a, we'll get to, we can discuss this a little later on, but there is a, there's extraterritorial criminal jurisdiction. So it is, um, it allows for any person subject to U.S. jurisdiction that knowingly provides material support or resources to an FTO to be subject to criminal penalties. Um, However, the phrase subject to U.S. jurisdiction includes acts undertaken by a foreign national outside the United States. And those acts become subject to U.S. jurisdiction if, at any point in the future, the foreign national enters the United States. Um, and again, we can discuss what that means, but in practical terms, that means a foreign person outside the United States can engage in activity involving the IRGC. Not the, neither the activity nor the person at the time are subject to U.S. jurisdiction, but if that person travels to the United States at any time, they do, and that conduct, that prior conduct does become subject to U.S. jurisdiction. Um, the second one is there's a um, any representatives or members of a designated FTO that are non-citizens, are inadmissible to and may be removable from the United States, and any U.S. financial institution that becomes aware that it has possession or control of funds in which a FTO has an interest must effectively block those funds and report them to OFAC. Now, those are really not terribly significant um, sanctions consequences, particularly when we are discussing the case of the IRGC. If you look at the IRGC and its SDN listing, the IRGC has eight program tags in its SDN listing listing on OFAC's website, which I think is a record. The only competitor would be Hezbollah. it is subject to sanctions under multiple legal authorities. Those sanctions include blocking sanctions, meaning any property in which the IRGC has an interest that comes within the United States or the possession or control of a U.S. person must be blocked, which means that it's frozen and it would be reported to OFAC. Um, it's blocked under multiple authorities. It's subject to correspondent or payable through account sanctions um, account sanctions, which means that Basically, if a foreign bank maintains accounts for or processes transactions involving the IRGC, they may be subject to restrictions on their ability to main accounts themselves in the United States. So the IRGC is not only not being banked by U.S. financial institutions, the IRGC is not being banked by any non-Iranian financial institutions either. Um, And there are also other authorities, including the Comprehensive Iran Sanctions and Accountability and Divestment Act, in which... are visa restrictions and under that authority i believe it's section 105 of the acronym sasada um, the secretary of state actually has to make a list of members of the irgc that would be ineligible for visas to enter the united states that's a more limited authority but a more targeted authority right so you so you're actually having the secretary of state go out and identify members of the irgc rather than having a um uh, uh you know blacklisting anybody who was a representative or a member of the i r g c at any point in the future or in the in the past um now you know i think what's holding w- for iran um i actually don't think Iran is looking at this as a legal matter i think it it i think ellie hinted at this is is really a political issue between the two parties. One is that the designation is a novel designation. No, the United States has not used its authority um, to designate a branch of a foreign military um, as an FTO in the past. Um, The IRGC is the first instance in which it has done so, um, which also the United States has shown general reluctance to do so over the past 15 years including under the Bush administration, to identifying the IRGC as a terrorist organization for this precise reason, because it is so novel to do something like this. Um, I think Iran you know, does not like the reputational harm that comes with that novelty. Um, I think Iran has a general grievance that, look, the United States withdrew from the JCPOA. It added a host of sanctions under its maximum pressure strategy. And, you know, if we give in now, we're allowing them because of their bad faith acts to keep intact some of those sanctions. Um, I think that is a, a deep grievance for Iran. And then uh, the third thing, which, you know, I've heard for a long time, but actually came out in reporting this week, which is that, you know, Iran had assumed that the uh, for a long time that the IRGC the FTO designation would be rescinded as part of a renewed JCPOA. And they believe that the United States had adopted that position um, in the negotiations. Um, so it came as something of a surprise for them that this became a, something of a last minute hurdle that the United States did not feel as if it had reached agreement on the matter. Um, and the United States believed it needed to extract some concession from Iran before it would be willing to um, lift the designation. Um, you know, and that makes it a real political struggle here, because it's really hard for Iran to give something to, to give something up that it thought it was getting, um, in return. Um, you know, again, the legal effect is, is hypothetical. I, I will tell you that the people who advocated for an FTO designation of the United States believe the legal effect is real. They, and this goes back to the extraterritorial criminal jurisdiction issue, um, because the IRGC, um, has such an influence in Iran's economy, um, it exerts a lot of ownership and control over organizations, um, uh, Cross sectors um it was believed that you know the idea of asserting extraterritorial criminal jurisdiction and rendering the provision of any material support or resources defined broadly to the irgc or its affiliates um its agents and affiliates would really inhibit foreign parties from returning to business as usual with iran as existed say at the um pre-U.S. withdrawal period. Um, So, you know, there was a real reason advocates of the FDO designation um, tried to push this through. It was, again, believed that this would be a deterrent to foreign business re-engaging with Iran. I don't think it actually works out that way. Um, I don't think many people outside the United States or even inside the United States are aware of this, of the the potential consequences. Um, I don't think there has been, I can't, think of a prosecution certainly not in the iran context i it's really hard for me to think of a prosecution of a foreign national conducting acts outside the united states who traveled to the united states at some later date and there was an indictment waiting for him and he was arrested and brought to trial Um, i don't think there has been a case like that so again the that legal consequence is somewhat hypothetical and i you know it's hypothetical it could do a lot of damage to iran I don't think it will do, it, and I also don't think that's why Iran is um, as aggressive as it is at the table. From the United States' side, very quickly, you know, there's no benefit to keeping the IRGC attacked, and, you know, curiously, the Biden administration has been using this as a talking point, even as it has decided that it needed to extract some extra concession from Iran before it would be willing to lift um, the FTO designation. You've seen this from Secretary Blinken, where he has remarked you made remarks before Congress itself saying, you know, the FDO designation does not add any legal consequences um, that are not already covered via other sanctions authorities um, or other sanctions imposed on the IRGC. Now, you know, so that leaves really the Biden administration in a in a, uh, a political, um, you know, it's it's a it's a political issue for them. Um, and again, there's actually interesting, if you actually look at the legal criteria for revocation of the IRGC, um, you know, one of those legal criteria is, well, if they stop engaging in terrorist activity and they no longer meet the criteria for designation. But the Secretary of State can also revoke the IRGC's FTO designation if he decides it's in the national security interests of the United States. Um, And he can also do so for any other reason. Um, So there's no legal... um, there's, there's nothing legally inhibiting the Biden administration from revoking the IRGC designation either. I, Secretary Blinken has been a little obscure in his remarks saying, well, Iran has to stop the conduct in order for us to legally be allowed to rescind the designation. That's not quite true. If he made a determination, it's in the national security interest in the United States. And I think there's a very strong case, as Kelsey points out, that it is in the national security interest to the extent that it will inhibit the United States from achieving some core non-proliferation objectives vis-a-vis Iran. Um, then he can rescind the designation, um, and again, that just leaves it, it purely a political matter for the Biden administration. It is concerned about the repercussions on the Hill um, from rescinding the FTO designation, particularly with midterms
0: looming. And and just to be clear, I, you know, I, I think some of the difficulties um, politically for the Biden administration may just be a matter of uh, how this is being presented as removing the IRGC as a terrorist group. Now, the fact is, Iran is a designated state sponsor of terror. That is not being negotiated. That's not up for discussion right now. And the IRGC is, um, you know, you named a lot of the authorities, but is a is designated under the uh, specially designated Global terrorist Organization
3: uh, uh, statute, is that correct? It is it's a specially designated global terrorist um, sanction under executive order 13224, which was the authority after that the Bush administration inaugurated after September 2001. Ironically, that authority, you know, Iran is not challenging its designation under that authority. That authority has much more severe legal consequences. Um, For the IRGC, so it includes a block on all property in which the IRGC has an interest that is subject to U.S. jurisdiction. It includes correspondent account and payable through account sanctions, meaning that any basically the IRGC is isolated from the global financial system entirely because no foreign bank is going to be handle transactions involving the IRGC, and also you know to the extent that there's a conspiracy. For a, you know, for the IRGC to to you know funnel to, to try to you know engage in a currency conversion through U.S. dollars or something like that, you know, there's civil and criminal penalties for doing so. Um, so the you know the IRGC's designation under EO 13224 is of much greater legal significance than its designation as an FTO.
0: Um. And so, okay, so I understand there are there are a couple of different versions of how this has transpired, this FTO, IRGC um, issue. You've heard um, the Iranians uh, believe that this was already part of what the U.S. was willing to accept and that this was Somewhat uh, settled, or at least was was very much on the table. Um, but other reports have indicated that there did seem to be a willingness by the Iranian side to um, uh, to reciprocate and to, in exchange, make some sort of private commitment to uh, scale down uh, activities in the region or or, or de-escalate in the region. Um, there's also this issue of uh the, Iran's targeting of US officials in retaliation for the uh, assassination of Qasem Soleimani um and uh so so apparently there was at least some uh attempts and understanding that there would be some level of reciprocity uh, but when it came to uh, demands that you know Iran make those public or make more firmer com- make more firm commitments um, that this began to break down, uh, and, and so I'm curious. With so much at stake for you know for the U.S. but also for Iran, um, sort of what are the political calculations on the Iranian side? Uh, why is this a no go? Why is Iran willing to scrap this entire deal um, because of this IRGC designation? When compared to the other terrorism designations in place, it's actually uh, somewhat meaningless. So, Ellie, I I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what's happening inside of Iran. What are the political calculations of the negotiating team of the Iranian system um, and sort of also popular opinion? We know that... um, there have been recent moves that are going to uh, make life even harder for Iranians as subsidies for uh, various government subsidies on on you know food and and uh, and other things are beginning to be lifted. So, what are the calculations inside Iran? What are the dynamics right now that may be constraining their ability to make this important decision?
1: I mean, I think the number one question on top of uh, their minds is. Does the Biden administration and President Biden himself actually want this deal to go through? Um, This was a big question mark when President Biden came into office, when we had the previous government of President Rouhani there, who was really ready and gearing to go to push uh, this deal um, through the the finishing line for the U.S. to rejoin the agreement. Uh, Unfortunately, that wasn't feasible. Uh, and in Tehran, the view was that the U.S. really dragged its feet in this in the first few months of being office, in office and gave a number of different justifications for that. Now, it seems what happened then is that in Iran, when the new administration uh, came into office uh, from the Raisi government side, they also came in with uh, issues that meant that the negotiations hit a wall, to begin with, very maximalist positions. But since November um Really, there's been a much more uh, realistic tone from the Iranians. And they feel that they have now conceded on several major points that they um, had in mind at the beginning. One was uh, to have some sort of a guarantee, uh, you know, not in writing, maybe implicit, Um that the U.S., the next U.S. administration, would not withdraw from the agreement. And, you know, back in the Obama time, when uh, senators like Tom Cotton wrote letters to uh, quote-unquote Ayatollahs of Iran to say that a Republican president would withdraw, we would all laugh and say this had no credibility. And actually, we now know this is very, very likely that if a Republican does take over, they could very easily undo any deal that President Biden goes to. So this is a major concession from the Iranian perspective that they've given in on in return for having at least, let's say, 18 months to two years of sanctions relief that they can bank on under the current Biden administration. The second point where they feel like they have made a major concession is on the point of damages, getting damages from the United States for the billions of dollars of worth of particularly oil trade that they lost out on. Um, even when the US withdrew from the deal, for a year Iran was abiding by its full commitments. Uh and so when the when the oil sanctions really came in under Trump, that's when we saw Iran Um, starting to leverage up its nuclear activities for a potential negotiation. and This has been a major issue of can Iran be compensated for that cost that paid and it's continuing to pay right now because let's face it, every day that passes by they're still facing the maximum pressure campaign in terms of uh, sanctions policy, at least on paper. So these are two major political points that Iran feels that it has already given away and it has almost um, again Uh, US and Iran are always um, stuck in this ideological (laughs) uh, game that they play with one another. And this issue of the FTO designation has become one of the issues where they want to test almost the Biden administration's seriousness to get back into this deal and offer sanctions relief to Iran. And the sense is from the Iranian side that they have accepted to take major uh, political blows at home uh, for going back into this deal under what they view as quite favorable terms for the American side. Now, I just wanted to mention one thing uh, related to what Kelsey said about the urgency of the situation for President Biden, uh, because it does seem that President Biden wants to uh, have a zero uh, blowback policy on Iran. Uh, some would say playing it safe, trying to keep everybody happy. But I think what has become very clear consistency uh, consistently on this issue uh, as we saw under the Obama administration is that any deal even if it's a short-term interim deal with Iran precisely because it is with Iran as a counterpart is going to receive major political blowback for any u.s president and the question is what is the best time uh, to act as a matter of policy to get the greatest gains from a nuclear uh, perspective on this issue, and with each day that goes by, by that President Biden delays this decision, I think the risks are becoming graver and graver. And it's not like he's going to somehow be able to win, for example, the more hawkish Democrats in his own party uh, to come on board on on a prospective deal with Iran. I think we've we've already seen that even under the Obama administration, there were certain senators under the. Uh, democratic side that refused the deal and will probably continue to do so today but the risks are really piling up you know kelsey mentioned uh the risks of a potential military strike if iran's nuclear activities continues to advance at this rate not just uh, from the us but perhaps its allies uh predominantly israel the risk of military escalation we've seen things quiet down in the region, particularly over the month of Ramadan. But we've seen Iran demonstrate an ability to uh, construct attacks into and out of Iraq, uh, and target uh, Saudi Arabia through proxy forces. So that option is also on the cards for Iran if it sees that President Biden is not serious about a diplomatic pathway. President Biden promised to to do a course connection on the nuclear agreement. He had a Democratic Party platform supporting him on this, and he's failed to deliver. And I think those are going to have uh, those steps are also going to bear a cost for him. And finally, I think that, you know, President Obama, President Trump, they managed to bring home detained uh, U.S. Uh, prisoners inside Iran, and President Biden has failed to deliver on this so far. And this is because from the Iranian side, this is going to be part and parcel of a a broader JCPOA deal that takes place with the U.S. So while the president is trying to play safe, not to have any blowback as he goes into the midterms, there are risks that are mounting up that could actually create much more significant blowback for him uh, at home uh, if things escalate on this front.
2: Camel, yeah, well, if I could just jump in on that. I mean, I, I completely agree with what everything that Ellie just said about uh, the cost calculus, and to just put you know, an even finer point on it. I mean, Biden can pay a price for lifting the FTO, which I understand is politically challenging, given Iranian threats against U.S. interests in the region. But he can either pay a price for that, or he can pay a far higher price for being the president that ara- allowed Iran to come to the brink of a nuclear weapon, or started a war to try and stop that. And I think, you know, in and if, if we look at that longer term, you know, it's far preferable to pay a cost for, for lifting the FTO. Uh, and also just to, to bring this back to, you know, to the JCPOA itself, you know, we shouldn't forget that the JCPOA was narrowly designed to be a nuclear agreement Uh, to address a decades-long nuclear crisis, in part because every problem that the United States has with Iran gets exponentially worse with the threat of a nuclear-armed Iran hanging over it. So we have other tools to address Uh, regional tensions with Iran. We have other tools to address our concerns about the IRGC. Uh, But if we allow the deal to collapse, uh, then we risk an IRGC that's further emboldened because of the standing of Iran's nuclear program. Uh, Would that um, that push them to, to, to be more bold in the region, to further jeopardize U.S. interests? I don't know. But that's not a risk I'm willing to take. Because as I said, you know, we have other tools to push back against the IRGC, Uh, we don't have another good option to address the nuclear crisis. I mean, restoring the JCPOA, you know, is the only viable option at this time, you know, to provide that longer term guarantee that Iran's pathways to nuclear weapons are blocked. So, I mean, yes, you know, Biden may take a political hit for lifting the FTL, but I think he'll pay far less of a price for that hit uh, than if, you know, Iran is allowed to reach the threshold of nuclear weapons status on his watch.
3: Yeah, if I could jump in too, Jamal. Yeah, yeah I mean, I absolutely agree with everything Ellie and Kelsey have said, and it, it is perplexing that the Biden administration has not been able to make the same kind of calculation that we're laying on the table right now. You know, the the I think even a, a deeper irony about the Biden administration's fear of paying a political price over rescinding the FTO designation is that the Biden administration is going to pay a political price for rejoining the JCPOA, no matter what. That political price was built in to the manner in which Trump withdrew from the JCPOA and reimposed sanctions um, accordingly. You know, remember the sanctions wall, the idea behind the sanctions wall, which was kind of the, you know, the concept on how Trump, the Trump administration imposed sanctions on Iran after its withdrawal was that you know, we're going to take authority, we're going to take, we're going to reimpose sanctions that were previously imposed for non-proliferation reasons, and we're going to impose them on terrorist grounds now. And that included major Iranian financial institutions, major Iranian, you know, major players in in Iran's, you know, industries um, who were designated under terrorism authorities. The idea being that the Biden administration, if it wants to rejoin the JCPOA, is going to have to Bite the bullet and pay a political cost for doing so, because opponents are going to attack them for lifting san- for, for list- lifting terrorism sanctions in order to get back in the JCPOA. The IRGC issue is just the latest proxy in this fight. Um, you know, if if they if Iran agreed, okay, we'll relent on the IRGC issue. You you can keep it in place. You know, do we have is there any idea that the political blowback is going to be any anything different than what it's going to be? Because, you know, as soon as we see in the annex, the names of the you know, Iranian financial institutions, um, Iranian businesses, etc., that are, are removed from the sanctions list and that are designated under terrorism authorities, the exact same political, you know, the exact same political fight is going to happen on Capitol Hill, no matter what. <clears throat>
0: We have a little bit of time for some audience questions, and I want to... Um, the, the first issue, actually, I wanted to get to uh, with Kelsey is how, how long can this drag on in limbo? Um, how long can... You already stated, if Iran continues at the current pace, things are going to get very bad uh, relatively soon. Um, is there a sense within the Biden administration that this is not as urgent as as we've discussed is there a split about maybe iran's willingness to 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 go to that next level? Um, and and then I, I'm also curious, you know for the past 14, 16 months, um, there's been this talking point um, from the biden folks that you know at some point the utility of the deal is going to expire. iran's program is going to, uh, get become sufficiently advanced that the JCPOA will no longer be valuable. Um, I, I've never quite understood that rationale, but I wonder if you could give us some sense of what the what the timeline really is for these talks to, to to be able to conclude with an agreement.
2: Sure. So to perhaps take that last part of the question first, you know, one of the common arguments against restoring the JCPOA is that. It, it's going to expire and that, you know, we've already wasted so many years, you know, why rejoin a deal that's, that's um, you know, who, whose limits, you know, will, will, will sunset. Uh, and, and I think that's a very poor argument against the JCPOA because there are significant uh, provisions within the deal that are permanent. The monitoring and verification, the prohibition against certain activities related to weaponization. Uh, So, you know, putting these measures back into place alone would have significant non-proliferation value. Uh, But where I think the administration is coming from when it makes that argument about diminished value is that, you know, Iran has embarked into some new areas of research and development surrounding its nuclear program Uh, in terms of, you know, how it's enriching uranium, uh, the machines it's using to enrich uranium, and some of its uh, techniques for manufacturing nuclear fuel. Uh, And as Iran masters these new capabilities, it changes our calculation of the routes that Iran could take to nuclear weapons uh, if it made the political decision to do so. Uh, and how quickly Iran could pursue nuclear weapons. Uh, so that raises the question then, you know, given this new reality about Iran's nuclear program, you know, is the JCPOA a sufficient bulwark against those new routes and pathways? Uh, so the longer Iran engages in these research and development activities, I think the more difficult it becomes to answer those questions. You know, personally, I think the threats from those new activities can be mitigated at this point. Uh, because they ha- Iran has not been engaged in them that long, uh, it hasn't mastered these capabilities and the other restrictions in the JCPOA are so strong um, that, that, that those threats can be managed. Um, but as I said, you know, as time passes, you know, that calculation, you know, could could change, and it could change for the administration. Um, but I think, you know, most concerning for the administration, you know, is that undetectable breakout period uh, because that's the point at which you know the concern arises. You know, could Iran produce that fissile material for a bomb? Um, divert it from a declared facility to an undeclared facility uh, and pursue weaponization activities that are much more difficult to detect, you know, using traditional sources of intelligence. Uh, So, you know, when the United States says that the the time is short uh, to restoring the JCPOA, I think they're largely referring to that breakout. Now, if, for instance, Iran did take some steps to try to lengthen that breakout, then i think you know in the next you know six months or so you know you could get to the point where the administration assesses that the nonproliferation value cannot be restored uh, because of those research and development activities i mentioned before um so again you know i keep coming back to this point you know the time to act really is now and the time to take bold political, you know, to take a bold political stance, you know, for the Biden administration is now, because this is the best chance to roll back the program, uh, to return, you know, more intrusive international inspections and, and, and monitoring. Because you know, if, if we wait, you know, there may not be a good deal to go back
0: to. <laughs> We have a, a number of questions about um, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the international coalition uh, imposing sanctions there. Uh, so, I, I would like some general, you know, any observations you have about how the situation has changed and how this may, um, you know, hinder or, or potentially help. I don't quite see that, but the, the potential for an agreement. Um, You know, uh, uh, a few months ago, um, the talks were stalled because uh, Russia wanted to ensure that uh, the lifting of sanctions as part of the JCPOA would. Uh, uh, not interfere or not be interfered with by the sanctions imposed on Russia because of their invasion. Um, uh, And, and, you know, uh, whether those were serious concerns or a leveraging and installing tactic uh, can be debated. But once that happened, the sort of anti-Iran deal echo chamber, uh, who has been shifting messages every couple of weeks for the latest uh, to to tack on to the latest uh, crisis uh, started calling this the uh, the, the russia Iran deal uh, as if this was an agreement that was in favor of uh, Vladimir Putin some even suggesting that Putin was negotiating the deal um, I think these are you know kind of shameless and, and fact-free arguments um, you know my interpretation would be that and I'm interested what the panel thinks you know, Russia probably has a uh, incentive to actually not have an agreement to have a Iran that is isolated and does not have incentives and abilities to engage uh, with the, with the West. But I wonder for the panelists, what is your sort of interpretation? How has the uh, crisis in Ukraine impacted these talks? How does it um, uh, how does it bode for coming to a conclusion uh, with an agreement?
1: I can take a stab first at this question um so look from my perspective there's no doubt that uh the tensions particularly between the west and russia are adversely impacting the ability to push things forward you know you mentioned the 11th hour spanner in the works from this russian public demand uh you know which the iranians had to then go to moscow to to get clarification and try and uh, patch things up and, and push the Russians away from this position that could muddle uh, the works even further for Iran to get sanctions even from the United States. To my understanding, you know, precisely because currently the problem is between the U.S. and Iran on this issue, uh, the political decisions, there hasn't been a huge amount of talking done at a technical level between, uh, let's say, the Europeans, the, the the Russians, and the Chinese. Um it is, however, um, clear that things have become more complicated. Let's say at the UN Security Council level, even for the Western Russia to work together on different conflict scenarios, let's say Libya or Syria, it's become th- people are just sticking to their positions even more so, and there's less room for middle ground. Now, the only hope uh, that we we have on this front is that looking back at the recent past, even under the Obama administration. The U.S. and Russia were able to kind of ring fence the JCPOA away from their broader tensions. At the time, it was over Crimea, it was over Syria, and they saw a joint uh, interest to contain Iran's nuclear activities. And and Russia even saw, you know, some political economic advantages to being able to more freely re-engage in Iran. Um, But right now, Um, It seems that, uh, you know, the Cold War mentality is back in both the Kremlin, the the White House and various European capitals. So this could... Uh, you know, open the space for more spoilers. Even if they, even if the U.S. and Iran are able to get beyond this FGO designation issue, you know there are very interesting conversations going on. For example, between uh, Israel and the Russians on the regional issues, and probably more broadly, uh, which no doubt would include Israel's interests on this uh, JCPOA nuclear deal. So I would say there are there are some in Tehran that are very suspicious of how Russia could make its move. There are others that are more closer to the security establishment and actually, you know, see this as a moment of opportunity for Iran to step away from the West and the JCPOA and actually consider cooperating much more closely with the so-called Eastern Bloc, uh, you know, Russia on security, China on sanctions evasions of of US sanctions evasions and on, uh, you know, broader uh, ways to uh, immunize, let's say, their economies from US sanctions. So there are those in Iran who have been very opposed to the deal that are now saying, well, this is an opportunity for us to have a very Uh, strategic relationship with our Eastern Bloc and actually step away from this necessity of lifting U.S. sanctions. Uh, I myself, given that the Vienna talks are not dead yet, (laughs) um, and I think that, you know, there are some very slight glimpses of hope from the movements, from, you know, the Europeans being in Tehran, the Qataris doing the back and forth. It seems that Iran still wants this deal, uh, still sees it valuable to get U.S. sanctions eating. Um, and so there there is still space for them to push through despite the broader global tensions. But I'd be very interested from you know, to hear Kelsey's thought on the technical cooperation with the Russians and Tyler on the shan- sanctions front.
2: Sure, I, I can jump in there. Uh, so on the technical side, I mean, we can't overlook the significant role that the Russians played in the negotiations to finalize the JCPOA, you know, and the role that they've played in working to find creative solutions to keep the diplomatic space open to restore the JCPOA. Uh, and you know, the fact that the Biden administration was willing to provide some assurances that uh sort of the technical trade and exchanges between Russia and Iran uh, to, to allow Iran and Russia to meet their commitments under the JCPOA if it's restored, you know, I think that's certainly positive. Um, I would also just point out that, you know, while it may be in Russia's interest for there to be, you know, greater tension and discord between the United States and Iran in the region, it's not in Russia or China's interests uh, for Iran to obtain a nuclear weapon or reach the threshold of a nuclear weapon status. I mean, that has profound implications for the broader nonproliferation regime, that could then, you know, challenge and threaten Russian and Chinese, you know, security interests. You know, as Ellie as, as noted, you know, when Russia in particular, you know, joined the sort of international coalition pressing Iran to the to the talks and, you know, in the lead up to the 2013 negotiations, it did so at great cost. Uh, and it actually, you know, agreed, you know, not to, you know, sell certain military systems to Iran that weren't even covered by existing sanctions. So it went beyond it obligations. Again, I think speaking to that critical point that, you know, nobody benefits uh, from a, nu- a nuclear armed Iran in the international community because those, uh, not only because of the threat posed by Iran, but also those, those broader non-proliferation consequences. Uh, so I'm hoping that, you know, we'll keep that constructive space open uh, to, 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 fit, to finalize an agreement.
3: Yeah, and just, just quickly on the sanction side, you know, you know, The Biden administration has not lifted the Trump's, the Trump administration's maximum pressure sanctions. What it has done is not enforce them um, to any extent. And we haven't seen, for instance, we haven't seen any new designations in quite some time relating to Iran. Um, And, you know, enforcement is subject to diplomatic sensitivities and the availability of intelligence resources. Right now, we're seeing an enormous diversion of staff and resources at the Office of Foreign Assets Control into administering the Russia sanctions program. It's all hands on deck at OFAC for the Russia sanctions program, um, to the extent that you, know, you know, we, deal, we, we have matters regarding other sanctions programs that have been left on the back burner for months now, um, and we don't have any expectation that they will be dealt with soon. Um, so it's hard to see how the Biden administration could seriously return to max pressure in a substantive manner. Um, because, again, doing so would require substantial investigative resources to be diverted away from Russia. It would involve intensive diplomacy with friends and foes alike, um, which could um, obscure some of the the objectives that the Biden administration is seeking to achieve with respect to Russia. And it would involve a lot of public messaging on what the U.S.'s policy towards Iran is moving forward. Um, and that's just not the kind of resources um, and staffing that either ofac or the state department has right now um with all of its focus being on russia and ukraine
0: all right we are at time um you know can i quickly kelsey can i just ask you i think i, I, I want to gauge what is the what is the next flashpoint here um so we've got the the mora visit this week i you know i think there's some the pessimism about what's going to come of that, but we're, you know, we we all uh, will hope against hope. Uh, And then there's a Board of Governors meeting next month at the IAEA for, do do you mind explaining that and and why that may uh, be the the next flashpoint on on this issue?
2: Sure. I mean, the next flashpoint actually might come shortly before the IAEA Board of Governors meeting when the International Atomic Energy Agency releases its report assessing the status of Iran's nuclear program. And that's really going to give us a a much clearer indication of how short the breakout window has fallen, uh, or if Iran has taken any steps to to mitigate that that window. So that should be coming at the end of May. Uh, And then we have the Board of Governors meeting. And this is an issue that we didn't even get into. But the, um, the IAEA has been pressing Iran for answers about... Uh, undeclared nuclear activities that date to the pre-2003 nuclear weapons program time period. Uh, these aren't current activities, uh, but there is serious evidence that Iran did not declare all of its nuclear materials and activities to the agency as required from that period. Uh, and Iran's really been dragging its feet on that investigation and you know failing to fully cooperate with the IAEA. Uh, so if the IAEA you know determines ahead of that board of governors meeting that Iran's cooperation has not been sufficient, I think you know, a number of states on the board of governors, including the Europeans and the United States, you know, are going to have to look at pushing for an official censure of Iran, essentially condemning Iran for failure to cooperate with with the IAEA. You know, that's necessary to maintain the global safeguards regime. Uh, But it could result again in an escalatory spiral. Iran, I'm sure, will feel pressured to respond in some way. Uh, So, again, you know, I feel like I keep coming back to the same point here, but I really do think it is critical to emphasize just how short the time frame is and how critical it is that, you know, Washington and Tehran, you know, move with greater urgency to try to resolve it before these flashpoints risk collapsing the opportunity to restore the JCPOA.
0: Friends, thank you so much for joining us, Ellie, Kelsey, Tyler. Uh, thanks for your thoughts and analysis. Look forward to continuing this conversation uh, with this with this urgent, uh, you know, ticking timeline that we have. Um, folks to join. Thanks for, for joining. Um, in two weeks, we have another panel on sanctions. We'll be joined by uh, members of American diaspora communities uh, uh, from from countries that are under U.S. sanctions and talking about uh, the U.S. sanctions regime uh, and how it uh, impacts uh, ordinary people inside of these countries. So make sure to sign up for that. Um, hopefully, we'll have some good news uh, uh, soon on the nuclear talks, but we'll continue our work uh, for better or worse.